Thanks for listening. The following is an audio presentation from High Country Christian Church. For more information, please visit www.highcountrychristian.com. I want to speak to you this morning not on the subject of motherhood. Um, So often, I was telling Perry this before the service, so often on days like today as a pastor, I always wrestle with the same thoughts and the same ideas. Do I preach a holiday message? Do I preach a Mother's Day or a Father's Day message? Or do I just share whatever's coming out of my heart? Because I feel like you could get extreme in either direction. You could never mention mothers and not, you know, pay them the respect that is due. Or you could preach a sermon having to do with every holiday. And how many of you know there's lots of ridiculous holidays? Like there's like probably 10 holidays for every day on the calendar. So I don't want to preach like a Groundhog Day message. You know what I'm saying? I'm just not interested in that. So I had some things in my heart this week that I wanted to share with you today. And I want to speak to you today on the subject of the persevering power of joy. I think that would be a blessing to moms. Moms, don't you need joy in your life? Yeah, amen. You ever, you ever feel like you need to persevere a few things when the kids get a little out of whack? I was speaking with my wife this morning when she came in. She said, I've changed outfits three times. The kids are arguing on the way. She said, I just don't know why. They just find something to bicker about. I said, well... This is the season of life that we're in, my dear. Amen. If you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Let me pray as you're turning. Father in heaven, we thank you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that you've given to us. Lord, we steward this time well. We ask for your help, Holy Spirit, to communicate with accuracy the things that you desire to say to your people this morning. I pray that you would grant unto us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us today to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. That God, as we receive the word today, as the Bible says, the entrance of your word brings light. I pray that today's word would bring light, direction, clarity into the hearts of those who hear it today. May we be good ground, God, to receive the seed of your word, that it might bloom and blossom in our lives and produce fruit for your kingdom. We thank you for all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Let's make our confession of faith together. Perry will put it up on the screen. We read this every Sunday before we uh, get into the word. And if you would like, I, I forgot to mention this, this confession that you see on the screen is available on a little card that you can take as many copies as you want of. These are free. You stick them in your Bible. They make great bookmarks. And, uh, and we encourage you to, to say this over yourself before you get into the word. When you sit down to read the scripture, make a confession of faith over yourself because Jesus said you have whatever you say. So let's, let's declare this out loud together. Say it together. Thank you, Father, that today the eyes of my heart see you, the ears of my heart hear you. My heart and mind perceive and understand your word and your will. Today I am growing in the things of God. Amen. You believe that this morning? You believe you're going to grow? I believe when you leave this place, you can be six inches taller spiritually. Amen, I do, because the word of God's powerful. 
It's potent. The Bible says the word is living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Do you know the word is capable of like a, with, with scalpel precision, entering into your life and going straight to the area that needs to be worked on. That's the word of God. It's powerful and it's alive. Amen? So Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to ask you, to believe with me this morning. I'm preaching this message, the persevering power of joy. I've never preached it before. I saw some new things this time around when I looked at this passage, and I'm just trusting the Holy Spirit this morning to help me to communicate it. How many of you know that, uh, well, let me say it this way. There was a gentleman by the name of John Wright Follett who was a, a, a minister back in the early 19th century and he said that the effectiveness of his ministry was always in direct comparison to the hunger of the people he was ministering to. He said that all the time. And um, I believe that that's true. You know that when we come to church, we ought to come ready to receive, ready and hungry, sitting on the edge of our seat, spiritually speaking. So I'm going to ask you this morning that you'll help me. Help and just lean into what God wants to say. I believe he's going to say something good to us, and I'm excited about it, aren't you? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, a familiar passage to many of us. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, and it reads, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance. Everybody say endurance. endurance. The race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Two very powerful scriptures, they're, con they're a connected thought, and they're actually a continuation of what the writer of Hebrews had been saying um, in the previous chapter. How many of you remember that uh, the Bible's not written in chapter and verse, right? You remember that this was a letter, you can, let me see here, from the very beginning of Hebrews, you can read the way it's written. I went back too far. This writer of Hebrews jumps in to, to begin to discuss the, what's the best way to say this? The supremacy of Jesus. He says in the, in the very first verse, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son. This book was written in 68 AD. It was two years prior to, to the city of Jerusalem being destroyed and dismantled by the Roman Empire. I don't know if you remember that from history, but in 70 AD, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. And this was written just prior, they say between 67 and 68 AD, this was written. And the purpose of the book of Hebrews is to connect Jewish believers to Christ, to the supremacy of Christ. In other words, Jesus is better than all of the sacraments and the, and the traditions of the laws of Moses. 
And, and he did this, the writer of Hebrews did this, I believe, at the direction of the Holy Spirit, just prior to when this city was going to be destroyed. Could you imagine being a Jew in 60, 69, 70 AD and seeing your city destroyed and leveled right in front of you? The Romans came in and they destroyed everything, the temple, all the relics, all the things that the Jews held sacred in their religion were, was, was flattened in a moment. And so God, because he knows everything, how many of you realize God knows everything? God, because he knows the end from the beginning, he can tell you the future because he's already there, decided to write this letter to the Hebrew people for the purpose of disconnecting them from all of that tradition and connecting them to Christ. I, I like to say it this way, the language of the book of Hebrews is a language of now, that was then, this is now. You ever hear somebody say that? That was then, this is now. That's the message of the writer of Hebrews. He's saying, this is what you did at Passover, but this is what Jesus did that replaced everything that you have to do at Passover. And we don't, we're not trying to knock the traditions of people, not trying to knock the Jewish tradition, but everything in the Old Testament pointed toward the cross. Amen. You can go, the, the, the Old Testament is rich with history, rich with, with, with it's, it's amazing all the symbols and the types that point to Christ. Sometimes as, as new covenant believers, we get a little offended with the Old Testament. You don't need to be offended with the Old Testament. Go and read it and enjoy it. Read it because it's an amazing history of the acts of God. I tell you, you read Moses and you'll, you'll start to question some things in your life. Say, man, I need to step it up. Moses was a supernatural dude. He had some power in his life, I'll tell you. But all those things pointed toward the cross. Everything that we do, everything that we understand points back to the cross. So, so Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joshua and Caleb and Moses and all these people, they got to see a glimpse of what Jesus would do. You and I get the advantage of looking back through history and seeing what Jesus has already done. We call it the finished work of the cross, the finality of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. How many of you know you don't have to, like Brother Sean was saying during the offering, you don't have to kill a goat when you come to service to make sure that your sins are covered. Why? Because once and for all, Jesus, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, hung on a cross. You see, everything throughout the whole timeline of human history points to the cross. For them, it was looking forward. For us, it was looking backward. But the cross is the central greatest, single greatest event in history. And for these Hebrews that, that are being written to, they're looking back to see what Jesus had done. And so the writer is connecting some thoughts that he began in chapter 11. Why am I saying all this? You thought I was preaching on joy. I am. I'm getting there. <laughs> Amen. Why does, he, why does he open this thought in verse 1 with the statement, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses? What does that mean? Why, why? I wanted to address what he's talking about there. Well, if we had time, we'd, we'd read all of Hebrews chapter 11, and you'd hear about all the great exploits of faith that the nation of Israel did. 
I mean, everybody's in there. Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rachel and Jacob and, and Gideon and Esau and um, uh, Joshua and Caleb and, and David and Solomon and all these people. All these people from Israel's history are mentioned in Hebrews 11. And what he starts Hebrews 12 with is saying, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, who's the cloud of witnesses? All those people who'd gone before. And the wording that's used here in the Greek gives this idea of people looking, leaning over heaven's banister, like in a grandstand, watching what's happening on the earth. Do you ever go to an ASU football game and sit in the stands and your attention is glued to what's happening on the field, right? You're leaning in to see who's going to score, who's going to get the ball, who's gonna, what's, what's going to happen, right? Hopefully black and gold comes out ahead, right? That's what Abraham is doing right now. That's what Isaac and Joshua and King David and King Solomon, you know what they're doing? They're looking at us. They're intently watching us to see what are we going to do for the kingdom of God. How are you and I, it's not a pressure thing, it's exciting. How are you and I going to change the world for the sake of God's kingdom and for the gospel? Abraham wants to know. I'm asking for a friend. How, how are we going to change this world? Joshua wants to know. Caleb is interested. King David is wondering, how are you going to affect your workplace tomorrow? They're leaning in. We're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. You see, this sets the stage for what he's about to say. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Notice that it says lay aside every weight. Who gets to do that, you or Jesus? Whose job is it to lay aside the weight? Us, right? You know, there's a God side and a man side to everything in Scripture. There's a side of things that God, just like, just like a quarter has two sides, but it's still the same quarter. I could sit and argue, no, a quarter has George Washington's face on it. And you could say, no, a quarter has the eagle on it. Well, we're both talking about the same thing. We're talking about two different sides of the same thing. No matter who's right or who's wrong, the thing's still worth 25 cents, Right? Right? Well, the, the kingdom of God's no different. In every scenario, in every subject, in every concept, in every theme in the kingdom of God, there's two sides God's side of it and your side of it. Right? Don't, let me give you a little bit of advice. Don't try to do God's side, because you can't. And recognize He's not going to do your side, because He won't. Amen. It's our side to believe. It's our, faith is our job. Grace is his job. There's an argument that people have all the time. What's more, well, is it grace or is it faith? The answer is yes. Amen. There's a God side and a man side. I'm not going to try to do his side, and he's not going to do my side. Amen. What's your side? What's your part to play in this? You're the one. I'm the one that gets to lay down every weight. I looked up the word weight in the Greek, and it's the word which means bulk or mass or burden. I kid you not, this is actually in the Young's Literal Concordance, the word protuberance. Yeah, didn't, didn't know that word existed. It means anything that is a bulk or a weight around your life. Uh, did you ever go to, Bi to, uh, to uh, 
college or high school and have a book bag that was loaded with thick books. And here you are schlepping this thing from class to class, weighed down by it. And man, your back hurts by the end of the day, doesn't it? That's kind of how a lot of people live with the cares of life, with the concerns and the worries of our life. Things get squirrely at work and we put another book in the bag. Things get out of whack in our marriage and that's a big one. We put that one in our bag. Our children get a little out of whack or they fight all the way to church on Sunday morning. We put another one in our bag. What's happening is we don't realize this. The devil's setting us up to not receive from God, right? We don't realize that that's what's happening. When we fight in our marriage and we get, you know, start butting heads with one another, we don't realize the, the problem is not the argument. The problem is what we're going to miss God saying while we're too busy arguing. In business, they call it opportunity cost. You're over here beating your head against the wall trying to solve a problem that's not really a problem. And in the meantime, your best customer just walked by. Seriously, it's called opportunity cost. Well, there's, there's tremendous opportunity cost that we miss when we don't clue in and let go and lay aside the weight that the enemy puts in our book bag. Just put that thing down, amen? It's not hard. Peter tells us in the book of 1 Peter to, to cast off all of our cares. Because why? He cares for us. Jesus wants to be the one that you hurl your bag of care onto. Amen. He's the one that was designed to carry the load. So we lay aside every weight, every bulk, every protuberance, every burden. Amen. Why? Why do we do that? So that we can run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, this word race is very interesting. It's not a race like a foot race or, you know, it's not limited to just two guys or three guys racing to the finish line. This word actually is the word for the assembling of the Greeks at their national games, like the Olympics. Why is that significant? Why on earth would I mention that? It's because if you look at the Olympics, there's lots of different races happening. There's lots of different competitions. Some people are over here shooting guns, and then somebody else is over here skiing, and then this guy over here is shot putting, and then these ones are doing a relay race, and this one's swimming, and that guy's snowboarding, and these ones are curling, and there's a hundred different games going on, a hundred different races happening, right? Why is that important? It's because whatever your sport is and whatever your calling is in the kingdom of God, you do your calling and I'll do my calling and we'll all run the race together. You don't have to look like me and I don't have to look like you. You can be called to whatever game you're supposed to be a part of. I'll be called to the game I'm supposed to be a part of and let's both just decide now that we're going to win. Amen. Let's just both decide. Okay, if you're in curling and I'm in the, high, in the long jump, you go curl, baby. You go get it done and take home the gold and I'll be over here long jumping and I'll take home the gold too. What's he telling these, these Hebrew Christians? He's saying, look at Jesus. Get some endurance so that you can run in the lane God's called you to run in. 
so that you can fulfill the unique calling and the unique ability that God put in your life to fulfill. You have a destiny, man. You have an assignment from God. Can you say amen to that? You were not an accident. You're not part of some cosmic disturbance and all of a sudden here we are. No, God master planned and designed everything that you see and you're a part of that design. Amen. You don't have to wander through life and wonder what is it going to look like. You can go forward with confidence and run in your race. Amen. Plan to win, huh? I mean, for real, just plan to win. Plan to win. Whatever race you're called to, decide now that you're going to win. How many of you realize Jesus did not go to the cross thinking he wasn't going to win? Serious. He did not go to the cross with doubt. How do I know that? The very next scripture tells us this. He did not go to the cross with any question of whether or not this is going to work. He planned to win. Say, when did he plan to do? When did he do that? Well, you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Do you remember when he prayed and he stayed up all night and he, he sweat, the Bible says, sweat great drops of blood. And he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. In that moment, he made a decision. I'm going to the cross and I'm going to win. He stared death in the face and death blinked. Yeah, he made a decision. I'm going to win. You know you can do the same thing. Decide now. Decide now, I'm going to make it to the end of my race, and I'm coming out victorious. I'm not going to be a casualty of the enemy's distractions. I'm not going to be a casualty of whatever the devil wants to throw in front of me. It's I'm deciding now that it's not going to work. Amen. That's faith talk. That's faith talk. Amen. Plan to win. Run with endurance the race that's set before us. Now, if you look at verse 1 and you look at verse 2, you're going to notice that there are some common themes. And I'm getting to the joy part, okay? Notice that there are some common themes in both verses. Verse 2 is actually the fulfillment of verse 1, but notice that there's two things that happen consistent in each verse. In verse 1, something is set before us. In verse 2, something is set before Jesus, in verse 1, we run the race with endurance. In verse 2, he endures the cross. Did you know that these, in both scenarios, are the exact same Greek words used? It's amazing. Where it says that something is set before us and that joy is set before him, it's the exact same Greek word. And it means, like, uh, have you ever been up to Howard's Knob? Y'all been up to Howard's Knob before? Or you ever been to the Thunder Hill Overlook on the parkway? And what happens? You're standing up high and everything is laid out before you. If you're up on Howard's Knob, you can see all of Boone. You can really see pretty much the whole community from one spot. It's all laid out before you. It's laid out in front of you. That's the language that's used here. That's the kind of word where it says that um, this thing is set before us, this race is set before us, or the cross was set before Jesus. It's, it's as though you're at a, a vantage point and you're looking out over everything. Why is that important? It's because when it comes time to endure, be aware of what you're looking at. Be aware of what you're seeing. When it comes time for endurance, be aware of what you're seeing. I wrote this down in my notes. 
He looked at us so that we could look to him. He endured so that we could endure. He took up the cross so that we could lay down the weight and he sat down so that we could run. There's this this connection that these two verses have, that they fulfill each other as you read it. I mean, there's this, there's this thing that's been set before Jesus in verse two, and there's this thing that's been set before us in verse one. And there's this commonality, there's this thread that holds the two together. Do you know what it is? Endurance. The enduring power of joy. Amen. Jesus, when he went to the cross and the cross was set before him, when he, when he was in the, in, the, in the garden of Gethsemane sweating those great drops of blood, something was set before him. What was it? What was it that he was standing looking at when it came time to endure the cross? He was looking at you. He was looking at the church. He was looking at you being redeemed. He was seeing you being full of the Holy Ghost and full of power. He was looking at you with healing in your body. He was looking at you with your family. He was looking at everything that he had planned for you, and it was that thing that gave him joy. The thing that he saw gave him joy, and the joy is what caused him to endure. Hallelujah. He looked at us so that we could look at him. You see, what is it gonna, what's going to be the thing that's going to cause you to endure the same way that Jesus endured? He was looking at you, and that caused joy to rise up in his heart, and so he could endure the cross. What is it that, what, what's, what's going to be your story? Are you going to look at him? As verse 2 says, looking unto Jesus, are you going to look at him, and as you look at him, joy rises up in your heart, and it causes you to endure whatever trial you're going through, whatever issue you're facing, whatever challenge is right in front of you this moment. If you'll look to him, joy will be found in your heart, and that will compel you and pull you through the trial. If you're in the same trial and it doesn't seem to be getting better, I would encourage you to check what you're looking at. Check where your eyes are. What's got your attention? You see, what had Jesus' attention that day was you being full of him. It was your life being full of his mercy and his grace and his wisdom. It was seeing you full of his faith and seeing, seeing you full of his life. And that actually filled him with joy to the point that, they, that he allowed them to nail him to a cross. It's intense. Do you know Jesus did not go to the cross weak? Think about it. I mean, for all of the physical abuse that he took, his body was broken and marred beyond description, but his spirit, man, was strong. Jesus, though he went weak physically to the cross, was strong spiritually. Why? Because he had something sustaining him called joy. Amen. He had something holding him together and thrusting him forward called joy. He didn't go to the cross despairing. So how can you say that? Because of what verse 2 said. The joy that was set before him caused him to endure. 
Listen, you gotta be really strong spiritually to get beaten beyond recognition, nailed to a cross, and while you're hanging there, pray this prayer. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. You have to be strong spiritually to do that. He, his body was marred beyond belief. He endured the worst, most gruesome pain anybody could ever endure, and yet while he did it, his insides were fixed. The word endurance here, it means to remain, to not recede or to flee. Listen, this is the actual meaning, to bear bravely and calmly. This is what joy will do for you. If it worked for Jesus, it will work for you. Jesus stared at death because he was fixed on the inside. The Bible said he said he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. He knew exactly what he was getting into and he did it anyway. And though he was marred physically, the joy of the Lord was his strength. <laughs> the joy of the Lord pulled him through the cross. How many of you know that same joy will pull you through some stuff? That same joy will pull you through whatever you're facing, whatever you're dealing with. If you'll tap into the joy of the Lord, you'll be able to walk through with confidence and boldness and set firm just like Jesus was set firm when he went to the cross, man. Glory to God. He was not weak. His spirit was strong. He didn't, I like this, he didn't recede or flee. He didn't run from the cross. He wasn't a coward. He endured. See, we think of endurance sometimes as like we just got to try to get through it, like somebody just getting beaten. I'm just sitting here enduring it. No, to him, endurance, and to what this word in the Greek means, endurance, is to face it with confidence and calmness. That though everything in the natural world was upside down and out of order and filled with chaos, and though everything about his life got flipped upside down in a few hours, and he experienced for the first time separation from God, you want to talk about the most agonizing thing any human being could experience. Jesus experienced it, yet he endured it. He didn't run from it. He faced it with quiet calmness. The Bible says he went like a sheep to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. The only time Jesus spoke was to speak forgiveness over the people killing him. Amazing. Now, how did Jesus endure all this? How, where, where did this endurance come from, man? Where does this perseverance originate? Verse two tells us, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand. Now, there's some direction for us in here. In that first line, looking unto Jesus. This word denotes, or this phrase, excuse me, denotes the idea that we learn from his example so that we can copy it. Look at Jesus. Did you ever have those parents that have more than one kid? Did you ever use your older child as an example for your younger child to follow? Well, honey, just do it the way Claire does. You see how Claire's doing it? She's trying to show you. Why don't you watch her and then do how she does? I have children in ballet. These are the kinds of discussions we have in our house. 
This is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get us to do. Look at Jesus and do what he does. Simon says, follow the leader, you know. We are to follow in his example if we're going to run with endurance the race that's set before us. How are you going to do it? How are you going to do it? you got to look at him. He's got to be the one in your field of view. He's got to be the one that you're standing up on, Howard's knob, like we said. And he's got to be the one that you see. you got to look to Jesus. Let your heart be filled with joy. You cannot get in the presence of the Lord. You cannot look steadfastly at Jesus and stay depressed. Come on, man. You can't do it. I deal and I see and I talk with depressed Christians all the time and I always tell them the same thing. You're not looking at Jesus. I'm not trying to get down on people that deal with depression and anxiety because it happens. I get it. The devil hates your guts and he's out to make your life as miserable as possible. So I understand if you're dealing with anxiety and depression and fear, I get it. But let me tell you in real quick, easy way what the answer is. Look at Jesus some more. Get in his presence some more. Because you cannot behold the splendor of his majesty and stay the same. You can, listen, there's, there are a couple things that you will find consistent in somebody whose eyes are fixed on Jesus. Do you want to know what they are? Joy and peace. Joy and peace. I was listening to one of my favorite, uh, excuse me, one of my favorite preachers. He flies planes. He's a pilot on the side. And uh, he says this. He says, you know, when I was learning how to fly planes, they used to tell us there was several gauges on the, the dashboard that you want to really pay attention to when you're flying planes, like fuel, <laughs> right? That's a big one. That's pretty important. I mean, if you run out of gas on 105, that's one thing. If you run out of gas at 25,000 feet, it's a whole separate series of consequences, right? There's some gauges you want to pay attention to. Well, if you and I are walking by faith, as we walk with the Lord and as we walk in faith, there's some gauges we want to pay attention to. Peace is one of them, and joy is another one. If you are walking with God and you're getting to the place in your life where you're losing your peace or you're losing your joy, it's time to stop and look around, ask some questions. How many of you know that a life of faith produces peace and joy? Can you say amen? A life of faith. These are two gauges on your spiritual dashboard that you should be aware of. Because listen, there's a lot of people who try to walk by faith, and they try so hard that they lose their joy. And you know what? They're not by, we're not walking by faith anymore. Because a life of faith always produces joy and peace. I was listening. This is the same minister was telling this story, he had taken over, uh, he went to Rama Bible Training Center, which is in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, and, and he had taken over this, uh, the part of the campus there that's known as Healing School, where they have every single day people that fly in with all kinds of terrible diseases and things, and, and they go there to receive healing, and they, they're taught the word, and then they're prayed for every single day, and you're talking about some serious cases, these folks, folks will show up and they're on breathing tubes and they're, I mean, there's people that are really, they've done everything else that they can do and now they're here to get healed. 
okay? Hey, pal. <laughs> Just doing a lap, I guess, huh? Um, so they're here, and they're trying to get healed. And so this, that was awesome. <laughs> This minister had just taken over the responsibility of running this healing school. And he said, I was so green in the ministry at that time, and I was trying so hard and being so serious about cranking up my faith so that these people could get healed. And he said, I started fasting like crazy and praying, and all I wanted to do was pray and fast and fast and pray and pray and fast. I'd be up half the night quoting scriptures and praying and crying out to God and thinking, here I am making big strides in faith. And he said, somewhere in there, I lost my joy and I lost my peace. And he said, God spoke to me and said, hey, are you the healer? He said, no, Lord, you are. He said, well, sir... You're acting like you think you're the healer. And he said it was in that moment he got his joy back. He got his peace back. He realized I don't have to try to heal anybody. The spirit of God is through me. You see, you can get to a place where you're trying so hard to build your faith to endure whatever you're going through that you lose your joy. And if you lose your joy, you're not going to be able to get through it because the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is what's going to compel you and push you through a tough time. Amen. Endurance comes because of joy. Look at this. Look at this. Joy is godly strength. It's the tool that God uses to make us strong. Check your joy gauge. You know, things, things work in the spirit differently than they work in the natural. If I want to get strong in the, in the natural, I'm going to have to go to the gym and put in some time and get strong and put in my effort, and it's going to reward me with strength. That's how it works here. In the spirit, the way you get strong is to receive joy. Yeah? You follow me? Uh, you don't look convinced. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 8. Watch this. Real quick, we're almost done. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 8. Oh, this is so exciting. Nehemiah chapter 8. It's between Esther and Job, but my Bible keeps sticking. It's like they, it's like they hid Nehemiah. Here we go. It's like where the pages of your Bible stick together. Nehemiah chapter 8. You know this, but it's good to see it written in the words in Scripture. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. Nehemiah 8, verse 10 says, Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow. Everybody say that out loud. Do not sorrow. If you're in faith, what are you doing? Sorrowing? No. What is your posture if you're walking by faith? You're in joy. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Look at it right there. Do not sorrow. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is a commandment, not a promise. Did you ever notice that? 
We quote it like it's a promise. Well, brother, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Yeah. No, this is a commandment. Now, there's a promise in it, but the whole thing, the context of it is a commandment. He says, do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, if you and I tolerate sorrow in our life, if we don't make the decision to stand in faith on the word of God, we'll just let sorrow just run all over us and we won't have, we won't get to experience the joy of the Lord and we won't be very strong. This is, listen, this is not a condemning thing. This should be an encouragement to us. Do not sorrow. Do not tolerate sorrow in your life. Why? Because it's joy that makes you strong. And the Bible says in Psalm 16, verse 11, we won't turn there for time, but it says in verse 11 there, it says, you show me the path of your life and in your presence is fullness of joy. In the presence of the Lord is where we find joy. Hallelujah. In the presence of the Lord is where we discover joy. It's where we look to Jesus. If you're dealing with or you're facing challenges in your life this morning, I want to encourage you, the way to overcome, the way to endure is not to kind of crouch down and just take it is to stand up with confidence, put your faith in the word of God, and begin to receive his joy. Look at Jesus. That's what it said there in Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You see, if you'll look at Jesus, faith will arise in your life, and joy will arise in your life, and all of a sudden, you'll be in the midst of hell on earth, and you'll begin to get strong. And here's the deal. It's not the trial making you strong. It's the joy in the trial that's making you strong. You can go through the same doggone trial over and over and over again and never get strong. Did you ever, did you ever take a, a, a test and fail it multiple times because you didn't study? I took my driver's test three times. <laughs> Let me tell you, when I, I was 18 years old when I got my driver's license. Do you want to know why? Because Sean had his driver's license before me, and he drove me around in his van all the time, so I didn't need to get my driver's license. Am I telling a lie? You remember those WWJD uh, bracelets we used to wear in high school? My, our, our friend coined the phrase, when will Josh drive? I promise you, I'm not making that up. I didn't need to drive around because Sean did for me. So I took, when it finally, my parents were like, dude, you're 18 years old, get your license. When I went to take the test, I failed it three times because I didn't study for it. I hadn't prepared myself. I hadn't made the decision that I'm going to go today and get my license. I went there and winged it, which is what most of us do when we get into a tough situation. We haven't prepared. We have not fixed our eyes on Jesus. And so we go into this storm and we have no joy. And so the devil just beats us up. We got no joy, so we got no strength. We got no faith. So we're just going to sit here and take it while the enemy just runs amok in our lives. 
But that doesn't have to be the case for you and me. There is a persevering power that joy brings. There is an endurance that comes from looking at Jesus and receiving his joy. You can come out of a storm stronger, not because of the storm, but because of the joy. It's the joy of the Lord that is your strength. One more verse I'll read in closing. You don't even have to turn there. Just listen to it. Nehemiah 12 and 43, and also on that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar off. That's one kind of party. When you can hear a party before you get into the city, it's a rager, okay? That's one kind of party. Listen, you can party your way through life's problems. I mean it. You can rejoice your way through every single challenge that life throws at you. Every time the enemy comes, no matter what you're dealing with, oh, I got pain in my body. You know, we were talking about this. I'm ready to close, by the way. Perry and I were talking about this this morning. We were talking about confession, you know. What do we confess when we get into a tough situation? So often we think that faith is a denial of the situation that we're in. So we get sick and we go, I'm not sick. I have no pain. I have no pain. I have no pain in Jesus' name. I have no pain. And in the meantime, you're wincing with pain. And it's obvious to everyone that you have pain. And so th- th- this is, we get kind of tripped up on this sometimes. Faith is not denial of what you're going through. Faith recognizes what you're in and challenges it with the word of God. So you feel sick in your body, you got pain in your body, you don't curl over and say, I have no pain, you stand up, joy rises up, and you say, I'm healed in Jesus' name. Oh, I've got pain, I don't feel healed. But if I felt healed, I wouldn't need any faith. Right? When are you, listen, let me ask you a question. When is it time to believe? Before you see, before you feel, before you encounter or you receive what you're praying for. You don't need to believe after you see it right? I believe there's X number of people in this room. Well, duh, I'm looking at you, right? I don't need to believe that you're here. I can see you. When would I need to believe that you're going to come? At 930 when nobody's here yet, right? When do you need to believe for the miracle? Before you have it. That's when you need faith. That's when you need joy. That's when you need to look at Jesus. Did you know that that is the moment that God gets pleasure. It's when you believe before you see. Jesus told Thomas, blessed are they that believe when they don't see. Hebrews 11 verse six, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Do you want to bring God great pleasure? Don't you want to cause his heart to rejoice? What do you gotta do? Learn to believe. Learn to have joy. Learn to look at Jesus. And joy will arise in your heart. You'll endure every trial and you'll come out stronger. Can you say amen? Let's stand up to our feet this morning. We hope that this message inspired you and filled your heart with faith. If you would like to visit our church, check out www.highcountrychristian.com for service times and location information. Thanks again for listening to this audio presentation from High Country Christian Church, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.